When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gospel reading from John 7, 37 through 39. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive, for as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, we pause at this time in the service to acknowledge that um, we hold this hope of the presence of your spirit with open hands, and we hold it in the midst of a world that is weeping, weary, uh, marred by violence and hatred, sickness, suffering, and death. And even this morning, as we come into this space, we're mindful of that uh, the gun violence that has touched tragically the lives of so many in our country has um, touched the lives of many in our city even this weekend as we are responding now to the reality of a mass shooting on South Street last night uh, that claimed the lives of three and left 11 wounded. We cry out to you as Philadelphians. We cry out to you as humans. We cry out to you as as people who are vulnerable to these things and as neighbors to others in the city who are vulnerable to these things. And we cry out to you even most basically as your spirit-filled church, pleading with you that you would bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and that the peace and the justice and the wholeness and the life and the love that you promise would come in fullness. And that this Holy Spirit that you've given us as a down payment and deposit of that future world would animate us, would enliven us together with Christ, 
would fill us with hope and would empower us to go out into the world as your servants, as the hands and feet and body of Christ, embodying in this place your kingdom, your place of love and life, your people seeking your presence on earth. So we ask you now as we come and we open your scriptures and as we ponder this mystery of your spirit who is here, we pray that you would stir us to life and hope. And we pray for our neighbors. We pray for our city. We pray for those who are weeping this morning. We pray for those who are feeling the ache of loss and those who are feeling traumatized by recent events. God, would you speak your peace to us and would you make us a people of peace by your grace. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we've already said Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And we've already received some birthday gifts. And we've talked about how, uh, how we, as the members of the body, get to show up in the lives of one another and in the ministry of the church as gifts God has given to this community and to the city, to the places that God calls us to go. And all of it harkens back to this day of Pentecost, this moment where uh, the tide of history turned, so to speak, and God poured out his spirit on his people on this day, uh, which we need to see as a kind of coming of age of the people of God. And as we think about that, I want us to be thinking about our own community as resurrection or our own lives even individually uh, and, and how we live out our Christian calling in the world and what it means specifically for us to be Pentecostal as the church in like all the good, healthy, and authentic ways that we might understand that word. And I, I know that word immediately can be problematic, right? Because that word means different things in different communities. Um, in some communities, uh, that word, sometimes there are denominations that even have that name, that word in their name, right? And often that word is associated with like the miraculous gifts or things like, you know, like speaking in tongues or healing or prophecy or miracles, things like that. And some of you have grown up in communities like that. And, um, and some of you have experienced health and unhealth in communities like that, right? Um, and so I, I recognize that even taking that word can be challenging. But the church, born at Pentecost, must be Pentecostal in the truest sense of that word. And so we need to maybe unpack that a little bit. And that's what I want us to do this morning. And the denominations and the traditions that we've all grown up in or that we're part of now, whatever, they've all shaped our way of thinking about that to where we probably have some obstacles to overcome. So if you've grown up in a tradition that's embraced a word like Pentecostal or a charismatic community, usually communities in those that, that will embrace a word like that will emphasize the continuing work of God through these miraculous gifts, right? And, and often will see those miraculous gifts as necessary. As, as, as markers of legitimacy, if you will. Whereas, for example, if you're not someone who speaks in angelic tongues, maybe you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and maybe you're not as involved with God as you thought you were. And there are communities that function like that. And as I've talked with several of you, many of you about your own experiences in communities, um, you know, I've, I've heard stories of trauma uh, that have arised, of, of anxious dread, of, of I feel like I have to pretend or, or put on a particular kind of act in order to be received or embraced in a community. And what happens if my experience doesn't fit or doesn't look like someone else's experience? 
But then there are others of us who've grown up uh, in, in, a, in other kinds of church traditions where a word like Pentecostal is often not really embraced, often because it's associated with miraculous gifts. And, uh, and, and those traditions tend to embrace a view that miraculous gifts of God to the church have ceased now, right? That, that the miraculous stuff belonged to that apostolic age long ago when the church was being birthed in the world by the Spirit. But as those 12 apostles who were uniquely gifted and called to a foundational generation of ministry in the church, as they retired and died and ceased, so also did the miraculous gift cease to be a normal feature of the life and witness of the church. That's a very common view in much of Protestantism, especially in the Western world, especially among traditions like ours, whose various doctrines uh, and traditions came of age in like the 16th to 19th centuries, right alongside the advent of modernity and the enlightenment and the scientific revolution and industrialism and the European colonizing of much of the world. Our theological traditions in much, in much of Protestantism were developed during a time when human reason was becoming king, when human achievement was beginning to blow our collective minds humanly speaking, and uh, inflate our sense of being masters of the universe. And coming of age at a time when European conquest spread these ways of thinking and doing life throughout the world by force and by subjugating other peoples who didn't think or act like that and ruling over them. And so we have to reckon with a long tradition there. And there's a, there's a need to kind of explain everything and have a tidy answer for everything that flows from our Western arrogance and anxieties more than it does from faith and hope and love to which God calls us. And regardless of where you're coming from, whether you're coming from a tradition where you need to have tidy answers for everything, and if you don't, you become anxious, or if you're coming from a tradition where things have been more lively than what we maybe experience here in the room, and you're, and you're trying to process all of that. We all have obstacles to overcome, but the important thing for us to sit with this morning as we open ourselves to God, as we listen for his voice, as we sit with the scriptures, is to recognize that the God at work at Pentecost is the same God who, has, who is present and at work among us today. And that moment of Pentecost that was the birthday of the church in the world. What we do today and who we are today is fundamentally and organically tied to that moment in a really, really profound and important way. And the charter of the church in that moment is the same charter for the church today, to be the spirit-filled body of Christ in the world to be the people of God reorganized in and around Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, joined to him and to one another by the spirit and made one. And so as we think about what does it mean then for us, as we think about how we might experience a little bit of renewal in terms of our church community, or maybe even our own lives individually around what does it mean to be Pentecostal I have a few thoughts and they flow from this text. I mean, there's so much more to, to say about that, but we'll, we'll be in this Pentecost moment for the next three weeks as we today see this event and then next week we'll get Peter's speech and then the week after that we'll see kind of some of the responses to Peter's speech. All of that's happening within just a few minutes here, hours on that day of Pentecost. 
But this first episode that we get really sets the stage for all that unfolds and introduces us to this Pentecost moment. So what does it mean for the church to be Pentecostal today? Well, first, I think it means being the people of God according to what God has done in Jesus and not according to other common denominators that we may prefer. This is, I know it sounds, this is a drum that I beat all the time, um, but it really is the thrust of the New Testament message is that God has done something new in Jesus. And what God has done in Jesus is he actually has created in Christ a new humanity in the earth. And he has planted in Jesus the very life of God in the world and has invited all humanity to know God and be united to one another in and through Jesus. And so one way we might say is like, look, what God has done in Christ is he's actually planted the divine life in the earth and he calls us to participate in it together through Jesus. Religion, or even we might say more narrowly, Christianity is like the, is like the human made apparatus built up around that new life, that new thing God has done in Jesus, right? And there, there are aspects of Christianity that are helpful and conducive for fanning into flame that spark of new life. And then there are aspects of Christianity and religion that are obstacles, that are like the wet blanket thrown on that life. And those things need to be deconstructed in every generation. And it can be difficult to discern what's what. But part of what it means for us to be the church that is Pentecostal, I think, in all of the right ways, is to be the people of God according to this Pentecost moment where we see God pouring out the Spirit on his people and we see people from all these different language groups, all these different locations on the earth who've gathered together in Jerusalem and they receive at the same time this one spirit of God and hear in their languages the good news of Jesus proclaimed in a way they can understand. And what we see is God doing something dramatic and remarkable and unifying and powerful. And that moment that is the birthday of the church. I was listening to a podcast this week with a, a, a theologian, pastor, and professor named Jay Augustine, who comes from Louisiana, has taught at Duke Divinity School and other places, um, pastors at church. He's, a, he's an AME, uh, African Methodist Episcopal pastor, but he comes from New Orleans and gumbo is his vision for what the body of Christ is supposed to be. He talks about gumbo as like this, this sacramental picture for him where it's this one delicious dish in which all of the constituent parts are blended, but they're not assimilated in this like melting pot sense, right? But they're, they're brought together where the shrimp is still the shrimp and the sausage is still the sausage and the okra is still the okra, but it's better together. Each individual part still retains its own dignity and its uniqueness but it's combined with the others to make this gumbo that is special because it's, it's brought together into one bowl. And for him, that is the picture of the body of Christ. That is the picture of God's vision for humanity, that we from all of the different tribes, ethnicities, language groups, racial identities, what have you, all the different things that make us different, distinct, unique, all of our cultural backgrounds, we don't lose those pieces of our identity as we're brought together into one. It's not a melting pot assimilation to make us a uniform people or a monocultural or a monolithic people. 
but it is to become one family in which the individual dignity of each human being is embraced and celebrated. And the one anothering act of the one family can come to life as we all want one another, as we embrace one another and go deeper together into this life with God and one another that God has begun in Jesus and invited us into. And the spirit, that same spirit that came at Pentecost is the unifying thing. Not like the spirit plus similar tastes in this or that, or spirit plus we speak the same language, or spirit plus any other common bond, or spirit plus you drank the red Kool-Aid or the blue Kool-Aid of American politics. But one family united only in Jesus, united by only the spirit who joins us to him and one another. And then the unity is then something we get to work out as family, figuring out how to be one, including all of the differences we bring into the gumbo. I think it's a beautiful vision and it is the vision of Pentecost. And I think another piece then of what it means for us to be the church that is Pentecostal in all of the right ways is that we become a people that live into that story of God that unfolds toward Pentecost and beyond, which is another way of saying we live into the now and the not yet of God's future. That God has done something really definitive in the world in sending his spirit. And God has also promised to do something in fullness when he brings to completion the good work that he's begun. And that the moment we live in is connected both backwardly to what God has done in Christ and in sending the spirit and forwardly to the fullness of that future God has promised. And we live in this in-between where we really and truly participate in this future of God, even as we do it inside of a world and inside of bodies and inside of relationships that are broken and weary and weeping. The kingdom is now and the kingdom is also not yet. And this is where we need to see the story as it unfolds toward Jesus and the spirit. Let me ask you this. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? There are a number of ways we could answer that question truthfully uh, and, and robustly. We could say Jesus died for our sins, right? Jesus died to take to the cross the sins of the world. Jesus died, we could say, under the hands of the empire. Um, Jesus died because of human violence, also true. But one of the really important things we need to see is that Jesus died and rose again so that God could send the spirit. Why did Jesus die? So that Pentecost could happen. Because the future of God's people has always been to be a future marked by the presence of God's spirit. Not to be a people that live by law, but to be a people who live by spirit. And even the apostle Paul will talk about this moment where like the law served its purpose as like a tutor or an au pair, a guardian who held the fort down in the youth of God's people to provide a function that was needed then for raising up God's people to maturity. But now in the age of the spirit, Paul says in Galatians, we have the spirit, or as he says in Romans, the spirit who did what the law could not do. 
And so there's this coming of age of God's people that comes with the spirit where we are to see that God has done something in Jesus that now enables the people of God to live into the world with new power, with new agency, with new vitality that's really, really critically important. And it's a moment to which all of the story of God up to this point had been waiting. We just ordained elders and deacons. Well, there's a story back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, where Moses is setting apart elders, 70 of them to help share the work. And the spirit of God comes upon these 70 elders and people are pushing on Moses and they're like, hey, you know, dude, are you upset that like some of the glory is kind of off of you now and you have to sort of share the mic? And Moses' response is like, if only all God's people would become prophets and have the spirit, that would be great. Well, that's exactly the vision that the prophet Joel will pick up later in the Old Testament, where he's looking forward to a moment that he calls the day of the Lord. And he says, you know, in that day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. The sons and the daughters will prophesy. Even the male and the female slaves, he says, will prophesy, which is a way in those days, in, in Joel's day, of, of saying all of God's people at every level of status will be included with this and made alive with the spirit, be prophets as equals in this new people of God. Ezekiel and Jeremiah look forward to this moment. Ezekiel thinking of a day when the heart of stone will be taken out and a heart of flesh given, or Jeremiah talks about it, this new covenant moment where there will be a circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. And in that day, all of the people will be able to respond to God's leading and obey. It's the moment Moses looked forward to when they were entering the land. And he said, you aren't going to be able to choose life and not death because you just don't have it in you. You need a circumcision of heart that hasn't yet come. Well, as the prophets looked forward to that moment, what would that moment look like? What would that moment be when that future would come? It would be marked with the coming of the spirit. That's the day they looked forward to that day of the Lord that loomed large in their imagination, that future hope when God would make things right, that day would be marked by the coming of the spirit that would enable God's people to love the Lord and to love their neighbor the way God intended them. And what we see at Pentecost is that story coming of age. Now, this Pentecost moment isn't coming out of nowhere. The people are all in Jerusalem here for a festival, uh, a festival that they called Pentecost before any of this stuff happened. Pentecost is a word that means 50th day, and it is the feast that in Hebrew is called Shavuot. It is the feast of weeks, and it happens seven weeks plus one day after Passover. So 50 days after Passover. It's one of the three main pilgrim festivals uh, in, in Israel. So there's the Passover, which is for eight days, you know, and that's right around the time that, you know, we talk about Jesus's own crucifixion, right? Happening on the night that he was betrayed. He's having Passover, uh, the feast with his disciples. So you come to Passover, you come to Jerusalem for Passover and that festival lasts for eight days. Well, you come for the Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days later, that's a one-day festival. And so it would be common for the pilgrims to come for Passover and stay in Jerusalem for the whole 50 days and then celebrate the Feast of Weeks at the temple and then go back home to wherever they came from and then come back later in the fall for the Feast of Booths, which would be the other pilgrim festival. 
So you got a lot of pilgrims staying in Jerusalem during that time, and they're, and they're there. Um, and Luke tells us at the end of Luke's gospel that the disciples were coming back to the temple continuously as they were staying in Jerusalem and waiting for Jesus to give the gift that he promised. And so let's put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples. So there they are. They've been at the temple. They've been waiting for Jesus. And now we've come upon the Feast of Weeks, which is a harvest festival that happens at the end of the barley harvest to celebrate all the bringing in of the barley and that anticipates the wheat harvest that's about to begin. So it's a harvest feast. And they gather at the temple and what they remember is not just God's faithfulness to provide in the harvest, but they remember God's faithfulness to give the law at Sinai. Here's the thing. If you remember the story of the Exodus, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And then 45 days later, they arrive at the mountain of Sinai. Well, a few days after that, God meets Moses on the mountain. And there's clouds and there's thunder and lightning and a bunch of dramatic stuff, right? And God gives the law. And it's this moment when God marries his people. That's the picture. It's a wedding of the Lord and Israel. God rescues them. He brings them through the desert for 45 days and then somewhere right around that 50th day, it doesn't spell that out for us in Exodus, God marries his people. Well, it became tradition uh, at least two to 300 years before Jesus that this connection between the Feast of Weeks and the giving of the law was made. And it makes sense because that's happening 50 days after Passover, which is right around the same duration of time that between the Exodus and God's giving of the law. And so there's this moment where they're all at the temple and they read from Exodus 19 and 20. This is part of the liturgy of the Feast of Weeks. They're also reading from Ezekiel 1 and 2. And Ezekiel 1 and 2 describes where a windstorm replete with lightning and fire comes upon the prophet. And overcome with fear, Ezekiel falls face down until God commands him to stand and the spirit comes into him. And this vision that God gives, he commissions Ezekiel to be his prophet and he empowers him to take the word of God to the people. So imagine being a follower of Jesus. Imagine being an Israelite who's come to Jerusalem, who's there to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, and you're celebrating the giving of the law, and there's a mountain, and there's, uh, there's, there's thunder, and there's a cloud, and there's fire, and you're reading from the prophet, and then this thing happens where there's another windstorm, and there's more fire, and they're at another mountain, Temple Mount, and you've got a new encounter with God. It's pretty incredible what happens. And in this moment, we read that these divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue came to rest on the people who were gathered. And then the Holy Spirit enables these people who receive these tongues of fire to begin to speak in languages that are intelligible by all these people who've gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. Now it's important in this moment to recognize all of these people are Jewish, right? They're all Jewish. They've all gathered in Jerusalem at the temple for the festival, but they're coming from all these different places and they're speaking all of these different languages, but they hear the story in their own language miraculously as the spirit speaks to them. And what you get 
is a new Sinai moment. Just as God has rescued the people from slavery in Egypt and then 50 days later marries them and gives the gift of the law, now Jesus and Jesus God has rescued his people once again. And through a new exodus from sin and death, through his death and his resurrection, 50 days later is now binding himself to a people yet again and giving the gift, and this time it's the Spirit. A new people of God, rescued redeemed and now empowered by the great gift and set ablaze in the world to be God's body on earth. It's an amazing moment where God is doing something climactic and powerful in and through Jesus and now the spirit. And that moment and our moment are connected. That same spirit that came upon that church, that same spirit that ushered in the dawn of the new day of God's future. That same spirit that enabled and enlivened and emboldened those first followers of Jesus to go forth into the world courageously to share whatever it is that God would have them to share, that same spirit lives among us. That same spirit lives among us. So what does it look like for us to be Pentecostal today in all of the best ways that we might be? Well, perhaps it begins with our openness to whatever God would do. That rather than needing to explain everything in a tidy way, that actually enables us to remain in control. That we recognize that the spirit who comes at Pentecost is a spirit who always goes ahead of God's people. And the story that follows is the story of God's people wanting to get involved with God, trying to understand what in the world God was doing because it was different. It was different than what they expected. It was different than what God seemed to have said up to that point. And they were trying to make sense of it. And it was really confusing. And as you listen to the story unfold, what happens is they're just, they're just experiencing on the ground the things God is doing and the, the people who are coming alive and the people who are receiving the spirit. And you're realizing that the way God is making this one new humanity is actually new. It's in and through the spirit. It's in and through Christ. And it's not through the other common denominators that they had previously clung to. And they have to hear the stories and they have to be open and they have to adjust to one another. They have to make space for one another and they have to get behind the movement of the spirit and have eyes of faith open to see what it is God will do. And just as in the gospels, when we see the very people who miss Jesus are the theologians who think that they have all the answers, the Pharisees, as we watch the book of Acts unfold, the people who will miss out on the life of the spirit will be those who dismiss it. Some of us come from traditions where we demand the miraculous gifts. Some of us come from traditions where we dismiss the miraculous gifts. What does openness look like? What does curiosity look like? On the day of Pentecost, as some people stood there listening to these disciples and they heard in an unfathomable way, these Jewish men, these Israelite men speaking to them in languages that they could understand, some of them were open and heard it. Others of them were closed and mocked. And what we see is this dismissive response of, ah, they're just drunk, they're just drunk filled with new wine. 
Now we'll see Peter's response to that next week. So I'll, I'll stop short of getting into it, but needless to say, they're not drunk. That's not what's happening. They're filled with the spirit and God is up to some pretty incredible things. So as we think about connecting our own life today to that moment, I really think we need to rest, reckon with the, with the reality that God's, God does things. He did things then and he does things now that we're not ready for. He does things that we can't explain. He doesn't do them on demand all the time, but he does sometimes do them when we ask. He sometimes doesn't do them when we ask. But the people who get involved with God, the people who participate in this mission, the people who share in the life of this body are the ones who are along for the ride wherever it will take them, who are open to God and seeking to be a part of whatever it is that God will do. And it is very important to recognize that the mission that they go on and the mission that we share is very different than the many other missions that we've been a part of or that we've seen. It's an anti-imperialist mission. It's a non-colonizing mission. It's one in which this is not a mission of the spiritual haves going to the spiritual have-nots as you are my project, let me impart this to you so that you can change. That is not how this story unfolds. The way this story unfolds is not you are my project, but you and I are fellow subjects in the story of what God is doing in the world. And we begin to find ourselves caught up together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, along for the ride, caught up in the movement of the spirit and sharing with one another, what do you see? What are you experiencing? Listening to one another, making space for one another and humbly and openly actually receiving the gifts God gives, the stories that the people of God tell. And so, when we think about what does it mean for us to be Pentecostal in the best senses of that word, I think one of the things that we need to reckon with is that to be the Pentecostal church, to get involved with God and what God is doing will require our turning our judgment into curiosity. As long as we're dismissing from a place of needing to have the answers, we will be like those prone to miss God. As long as we are leading with our exclusion instead of our embrace, we will be like those in the story most prone to miss God. As long as we are leading with dismissiveness more than discussion, we will be like those in the story most prone to miss God. But it is those who are open. It is those who are humble. It is those who receive the gift who become participants and who experience the joy and the life of God. And that's hard and that's messy and that is not Western society, which is why we come into this with a bit of a handicap. But God is powerful and God can do a thing. And my prayer for our church is that we will experience renewal in God's spirit we will detox off of some of our unhealthier aspects of being Western and that we will actually become more and more Christian as we become more like Jesus, more caught up in the movement of the spirit and more involved with God and whatever it is God would do in this next season of life. May God give us grace, wisdom, and peace that it may be so. Let's pray. Our God, we need you. We thank you for your spirit 
We thank you for your church. And we confess that we are in deep need of your renewing grace, of your enlivening presence. And we cling to just about everything else we can find to try to feel secure without needing you. And so we need a lot of help. But we pray that you would give us a deep sense of peace and groundedness in your presence and in the world, that we would be okay to ride along with you in whatever it is that you're doing, that we would be open to you and the gifts that you would give, and that as we seek you and your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, that we would be filled with your spirit and experience the fullness of joy in your presence, and that we would share that meaningfully with our neighbors as fellow subjects in the glorious story you're telling as we fix our eyes on Christ and the future of the fullness of your kingdom that you've promised. So bless us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.